Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Though I did not plan this, I wish I could take credit for it. It is a great text. We're thinking about graduates at the end of our service. Uh, and uh, though our particular context is going to be still, how do we deal with suffering and trials? We'll see, really, Paul expands out and uh, it reminds us how God in His sovereignty is piecing all of our lives together. And what an important encouragement uh, to our graduates this morning. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. Last week, as we opened up the sermon on the text before, verses 26 and 27, I noted how one of the most difficult parts of dealing with any kind of suffering is if you think you're going through it alone. When you find yourself in the midst of a trial, some other kind of heartbreaking, disappointing, discouraging reality, and I think kind of the natural tendency is that you'll begin to hear this voice in your head. This voice that will tell you, not only is this bad, not only are you not going to be able to do it, but no one else understands you. No one else knows what you're going through. You're all alone in this. And we noted how not only is that really a a, a devious and deceptive tactic of the evil one, it's it's just not true. Because at the very least, Romans 8, 26, and 27 makes it clear. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is not only one who comes to your aid and helps you in your weakness, and what that meant was He fills up in you what is lacking. Whatever you are unable to do, which is any of it, He comes alongside to aid you in your suffering, trial, and difficulty. But on top of that, He intercedes for you. He prays for you. He personally goes before God the Father on your behalf. That is a profound and divine mystery that I don't claim to know the ins and outs of, but I do know it's true. It is in God's Word. It is a great promise to us. And on top of that, we noted how that promise was very specific. Not only does He pray, but He does so in accordance with God's will. That means everything the Spirit prays for you about happens exactly the way He prays for it. And this is going on all the time. This is happening whether you know it or not. It is happening in the midst of your deepest grief, but there's nothing in the text that suggests, well, on Tuesdays from 2 o'clock to 2.02 a.m., that's when the Spirit prays for you. There's nothing that says, well, it's every Thursday 
uh, in June that he prays for you. Suggestion is this is happening all the time. This is the intercession of the Spirit. Not only is the Spirit in you, but the Spirit is also interceding for you. It's a profound promise. But that then leads naturally then into this last section where I think Paul addresses what is another hard part of dealing with suffering. Not only do we sometimes think we're all alone in this, nobody understands me, nobody's ever been through this, no one knows what it's like to be me, to go through what I'm going through, but inevitably we bring up the big question, right? Inevitably we may ask others, or we may direct it directly to God Himself, why is this happening? Why is this happening? What's the purpose in it? Maybe then we'll add to that. When am I going to get out of this? What is this for? And, and we give a particular theological uh, impetus to it when we then ask, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this happen to so-and-so? Why is this so hard? When will this end? Is there any purpose in it? This is a tough question, right? My guess is all of you have asked it. I have. Even find it in Scripture. David asked these kinds of things of God more than once. It's a natural reaction. The good news is we do at least have some answer, the best answer, to the question in Romans 8, 28 through 30. But here's the problem. This is one of those verses. Romans 8, 28 is one of the most abused verses in all the Bible. It's one of those verses that tends to get cherry-picked out of its context and thrown into everybody's situation. In fact, I've been in settings before. Perhaps you have too. If you have done what I'm about to say, well, this is about to get awkward. All right, I'll just tell you, okay? If you've done what I'm about to say, this is just going to be awkward, but let's go for it. I've been in those settings where somebody is dealing with deep grief. They're in the midst of it. They're in the throes, the heaviest part of it. And somebody will quote some or Maybe all, but usually it's some or some part of Romans 8.28. Well, we know all things work together for good. Can I give you some pastoral advice here? If you, if you have somebody going through something, I mean, they're right in the heart of it. I'm not saying I don't believe Romans 8.28. I do believe Romans 8.28. I mean, I believe the commas in Romans 8.28. All right, in other words, I believe every bit of it. Just don't say it when somebody's hurting. Quite frankly, my guess is they know it as well. In fact, some of you have probably heard the verse used in the midst of suffering, and you've thought, yes, theologically, mentally, and uh, intellectually, I understand that, but I've got to tell you, that doesn't help my heart at all. I'll tell you what folks want in the midst of their grief. They're, gonna, they're going to pop off all these questions. I don't know if they actually expect you or even me to have all the answers. Now, the day may come later when you can have these conversations, and that can be very helpful, come back to Romans 8, 28 through verse 30, help folks understand it the way we're going to learn it today and next week, all right? 
And it can be very beneficial. I'm just saying this is one of those verses, again, that, that tends to get used in that kind of blanket way. But we know all things, all things come together for good. And then sometimes that even gets messed up. As if to say, well, all things, we should see all things as good. It's all good, right? Well, I'm gonna, I've got some relief for you today. If somebody has ever made you feel like you shouldn't have hated the suffering you're going through, I'm going to give you the freedom to do that. Because sometimes you should hate the suffering that you're going through. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Because some of the suffering that you and I are dealing with, we're dealing with because it's a broken world. Because it's a world still broken by the curse of sin that needs to be fixed. We're going to see that God's intent is not to make us think that everything is good, but that God in His goodness and grace is working to ensure that His purposes for His people are fulfilled. So this morning we turn to Romans 8, 28-30 and the last of what have been six principles for how we manage suffering. We've noted going all the way back to verse 18, verses 18 through 30, this is what Paul's doing. He's taking our present suffering, comparing, contrasting it with the future glory to come, and in the midst of this, helping these folks in Rome understand the nature of suffering, why we might suffer, what God is doing in His suffering, in our suffering. I, I think we begin then to develop some important principles, some, some truths, some promises that help us understand what's going on. So if we go on to the next slide, we'll, we'll work through uh, where we've been quickly. The path to future glory takes us through present suffering. Number two, glory's greatness far outweighs today's suffering. Number three, creation itself longs for the glory to come. Number four, like creation, we groan in hope for the future promise. Number five, and this is where we were last week, as we groan, the Spirit in, intercedes for us according to God's will. Number six, we can be certain, we can be certain that God in His sovereignty orchestrates all aspects of our lives to make us like Christ. We can be certain that this is the divine, sovereign work that's going on. Sometimes you may absolutely know it, sometimes you may absolutely not But this is what God is doing. God is at work in the lives of His people to make them like Christ. It is a work that will be successful. Romans 8, 28 through 30, make it clear that when I breathe my last and I enter into glory, and in particular then when all of this is said and done, Christ has returned and and the resurrection from the dead has happened, the great promise of this text is, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, will absolutely be perfectly conformed to Christ's likeness. That is going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. Oh, but now there's a warning, right? You thought, oh man, preacher's going to have another positive message for us this morning, right? He's going to tap into his Tony Robbins, Joel Osteen, right? Isn't that what he's going to do? Because I'm so much like both of them. If you're new here, that is sarcasm, all right? And if sarcasm bothers you, I may not be your guy, all right? So, uh, nonetheless, 
You, you thought so maybe this was all going to be positive. Well, I mean, I guess in a sense I think it will be. Because I can guarantee you this is what God's doing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is making you like Jesus. But that's not always a fun process to go through. It's not always an easy process. And this is just kind of anecdotally and experientially, more often than not, the best ways that God makes you like Christ is to take you through some of the hardest situations. I think this, again, is how Paul wraps everything up. He gives us this very clear word here that what God is at work doing is this. And though I don't have a why, a question to all of your why, uh, all your whys, I don't have an answer to all of those questions. I can't tell you exactly in all details. I can tell you this, that everything that happens to you, there is a greater sovereign work. There is a greater work of providence going on, that you and I don't always see, that we may not always understand, but that God will complete to perfection. So here's what I want us to do. I just, we're going to take a few minutes here this morning and get our feet wet in verse 28. I, I had uh, toyed with the idea of teasing you and just saying, everybody already knows what it means for God to foreknow and predestine, and so we won't even talk about it. And that would have frustrated a lot of you, wouldn't it, right? We will talk about both of those. Foreknowledge, predestination. We're going to talk about this next Sunday. Ha <laughs> All right, no, so next Sunday, you're going to have to come back. Uh, you say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm here because I'm, you know, we're, we're deal, doing the graduates, and that's what I'm here for. Well, th- it'll be online after a while, all right, probably. So, uh, we first, though, want to make sure we understand What is Paul's premise? Because the text really breaks up into two parts. Paul kind of does the what and the how. The what and the how. What is God doing? And kind of how has he done this? So verse 28 is the what. It is the promise. It is the central principle. So let's break it down. Okay, beginning in verse 28. And I'm just going to take it phrase by phrase. And we know. Stop there for a minute. And we know. Paul's already assuming a certainty of knowledge. He's not saying that we know every little in and out. He's not saying that we know everything about all there is to know about our suffering, uh, about our trials. This is really, I think, piggybacking to some degree on what he just said. The Spirit is interceding for us. He's doing so according to the will of God. The mind of God knows the mind of God perfectly. So the Spirit knows the Father perfectly. So it's always a perfect prayer fulfilled in precision every time. And we also know So he's following up naturally as if to say, and we know what this greater prayer ultimately is. And we know it. We can be certain of it. We can be guaranteed that what is about to be said is the truth. So let me encourage you here, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a theological principle that must ground the way you look at life. Instead of allowing the events of your life to dictate your theology. This has to be the grounding of how you view your life instead of allowing your life to dictate your theology. My experiences and my interpretation of those experiences are not necessarily what's true. Now, I know, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've just blown a big hole 
in what is the driving principle of our world. Our culture says you get to determine your own truth and your own reality. To the graduates here today, that's awful advice. That is awful, awful advice. You can't anymore do that then you can jump from Union Point to Bridgeton in one leap, all right? You, can't, you cannot in your own reality determine your own truth. All of that disintegrates on you at some point. And my theology dictates and interprets my experience. So Paul's giving us what is certain knowledge. We know what he's about to say is undeniable, undebatable. We know. What is it that we know? The next phrase all things work together. Now, some of you may have a translation. Uh, New American Standard, in particular, does a bit of interpretation here and makes God the subject of this phrase. In other words, it may say, and we know God causes all things to work together. That's a fine way to conceive of it, though I think the phrase, all things, is actually the subject of the sentence. All right? We've got... We've got graduates here. If you need to know what subject of the sentence means, ask them, all right? You'll see them in just a few minutes. They, they all aced English, and they can tell you what the subject of the sentence is. Okay, so this is what he's saying. All things is the subject, but he doesn't really mean that all things like, it's not like Star Wars and the Force, all right? In other words, God is indeed the cause of what he says here. And what is he saying? All things work together. All things cooperate. All things conspire together. The word actually that's used here of working together, it's the word we get synergy from. So it's that, it's that kind of a it's all that kind of language that all of these events in your life are coming to, together in a particular way. And I think at this point, by the way, Paul expands beyond just the idea of our suffering and we've done this before, in this case, when he says all things, how many things does he mean? Wait, you mean to tell me even when I've sinned? You, you mean to tell me when somebody else has sinned against me and, and I'm dealing with the junk of life because some knucklehead has done something else? You mean to tell me Pastor, when it says all things, and I know you've done this before, and it always gets a little chuckle every time. All right, Pastor, I know you love to do it. All things, what does all mean in Greek? Greek, it means all. You mean to tell me you literally are saying all things? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. It's not exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what Romans 8.28 is saying. Every single thing comes under God's providence and God's sovereignty. At no point has any event, any decision, any choice that any of us have ever made, at no point has that caused God to go to plan B. At no point does He go, oh, I had no idea. Scott was going to do that. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board, all right? He doesn't turn to the other two persons of the Trinity and say, we've messed this one up, all right? We're going to have to do this one over. It, no matter how great my sin, your sin, my suffering, your suffering, none of it falls outside of God's sovereignty. Now, we want to make a distinction here. This doesn't mean God is responsible for sin, 
Pastor, how is that so? Because it's so. You all hate that, don't you? You hate that. Preacher, that's circular logic. All right. Yes. Uh, yes, it is. All right, it is. How do I know it's so? It's so because God said it so. Well, how do you know God said it? Because God said it. All right. This, this, is, this, is, the, this is the nature, by the way. If, if you want to debate with me about some of these things, I'm telling you, this is how it's going to go. And you're going to hate every minute of it. All right. But this is how these things go. Because my ultimate presupposition is in the Word itself. Scripture is God's revelation to me. It's not mine to pick and choose what is revealed and not. So in fact, it is saying this. That doesn't mean I can reconcile everything that's in there, but I do believe that God is engaged in every facet of my life and your life and everybody else's life. And we'll make this very clear, by the way. This is a particular promise for believers. We'll see that in just a moment. It's causing these things to come together. Is He responsible for the sin that you deal with? No. I mean, he's, he's not the responsible one for sin. But yet, it doesn't take away anything from God's sovereignty. And when he says all things, I think it goes beyond suffering. I think it's good things, bad things, ugly things. All these events are conspiring together under God's providence and sovereignty to create in you the image of Jesus Christ. I will tell you, this is hard to see if you're in the midst of whatever that thing is. The thing we talked about last week, right? The thing that's your thing, maybe not everybody else's thing, but it's still your thing, so it's a hard thing because it's your thing, right? That whole thing, all right? In other words, that you may, you may be in the midst of that, so this is kind of hard to see, but I'll tell you what often happens. Get a little distance between you and the thing, and all of a sudden, you begin to understand the thing, right? You look back on it. And you can see how God was at work orchestrating these events. Making sure that His will would come to pass. I do believe, by the way, church, this is what God is doing in your life. We know that all things are working together. So let let me also then encourage you with this. This means you need to stop playing the what-if game. Do you know what I mean when I say the what-if game? To look back on your life and to say, what if I had, and then fill in the blank. To look back on your life and to look especially at the parts that you're least proud of, to look back at those events and to begin to evaluate them, to begin to to assess that if only you had chosen B instead of A, then maybe everything would be different. Now, I'm not suggesting it's always a bad idea to evaluate your decision-making process. That, that could be really helpful, right? Because Man, we've got a knack for making really bad decisions. That could be really helpful. So if you're doing the what-if game as a way of encouraging you to make better decisions, great. But I've got to be honest. I don't know what other benefit you'll receive from looking back at that moment in high school, that moment in college, that moment when you had your first job, that situation with your marriage, that deal with your kids, that that issue with other family relationships, or that time in church when, I don't know how helpful it is to go back and reminisce on those things. Because God's sovereignty is always bigger. It's always bigger than that. 
And you can trust that God in His grace and His sovereignty, God is a God of providence, a good providence, by the way. God is doing things even with your garbage to make you who you are and ultimately to bring about Christ-likeness in you. In fact, that's exactly what I think he's getting at in that next phrase. And God is doing this. All things are working together for good. Now we get to the tricky part, right? For good. The word good there has got to be understood in its context. Who gets to decide what's good? Do you get to decide? Do I get to decide? Nope. This is a reflection. Here's what's happened in Romans 8, 28 through 30. The divine curtain has been parted, and you're getting a glimpse in to what's going on in heaven. And you and I don't have the eyes or the mind to fully understand all that. But that is what's happening. We're getting a glimpse, as they say, behind the curtain to see how things are being done. And what is God at work doing? God is at work piecing all the parts of your life together, orchestrating events to bring about that which He designs as good. What does He mean by good? Let's go ahead and make this quite plain. What He means by good, what's defined later in verses 29 through 30, by good He means driving out of you sin and brokenness and death and forging in you Christ-likeness. So that everything that happens in your life can fulfill this purpose. Everything. Everything. It's all conspiring together for good. Unfortunately, we often want to define good. We want to define good as pleasurable, right? We want to define good as so all things work together in a way that's consistent with making me happy. All things work together in such a way so that I enjoy Every moment of life. See, it's at this point, though, where really I can say in all freedom, in one sense, everything God's doing is for good, but you may not think it's good. It's good according to God's design and God's definition and God making you like Christ. But let me tell you, you don't have to like everything you're going through. Some trials are frustrating. They often hurt. They often cause tears. They they, they bring up questions. They go after our faith. Here's the way I've heard it that I think is, is put really well. I didn't come up with this. I've heard this more than once. I don't know where it originates. You may not always like God's process, but you can always trust His purpose. He doesn't mean that every little thing that happens to you is a good thing as you and I define good. But as He defines it, God is engaged in a process whereby He's making you like Christ. And sometimes that really hurts. Think of it like this, parents. There's plenty of things that you do for your kids that are good that they don't like, right? And what is it that you tell them? This is 
good for you. Really? Boiled okra? I don't think so. All right? I know some of you love it, but you'll never convince me. It's not good. None of it. I know you've said, but have you ever had it like this? Yes. All right? I have. I've been preaching for 20 years, and I've told everybody I don't like okra. I've had okra prepared every which way, and I don't like any of it. All right? But I had to eat it. What's odd is this was our Saturday night meal. Bacon and mayonnaise sandwiches and fried okra. And shanana. All right? Do you all remember shanana? Some of you don't. Some of you are going to have to find it on YouTube. You can. All right? Bowser, shanana. All right? Every Saturday night. I think a bacon, mayonnaise sandwich, and fried okra is probably child abuse today. I don't know. I mean, they may, they may haul you off for this today. This is what it was. I hated the okra when I could smell, when I could smell it. Oddly, I don't know if this is true, but my mom would say, eat it because it is good for you. I have no way. All right? But anyway... However, I did eat it because you know what else was good for me? Obedience, all right? Because you know what was bad for me? When you disobeyed the wife of the colonel, all right? Okay? That was always bad for me. It happened more than once. But anyway, it was always bad when it happened. It's not to make light, by the way, it's not. It is not to make light of somebody's suffering because some of it, some of you people have really gone through, I mean, just really almost unimaginable and horrific things. You don't always have to like the process. You can hate the process. And sometimes that process is what it is because it is still a broken world and a broken system and broken people. Sin still corrupts and decays and rots Everything. But just trust that God superimposes His sovereign grace over it all to bring about His desired end. And that end is to make you like Jesus. And all of that is good. All of that is good. Now, I think at this point then it's also important to say, you know, that when we face our suffering in particular, you know, God may use that in a variety of ways. I mean, suffering reminds us of the damage of sin. Suffering can be good because suffering forces us to see this world for what it really is. It's a, it's a broken place, and it doesn't really meet my needs like I think it should. So suffering is a way to point out my own sin in my life. Suffering is a way to produce in me patience and perseverance. S- suffering can be that thing... When your relationships are causing your pain, it's a reminder to you, the only one who can satisfy you is Jesus Christ. When your issue is money, resources, job, suffering is a reminder to you, Christ and Christ alone is the truest treasure. And He's of of a value that's greater than, than silver or gold. When your thing is your health, that suffering is a reminder. This earthly tent you're wearing, one day is going to be cast off and replaced with a glorious body fit for heaven. 
In other words, at every point you might be facing, there's a theological counter where this is what God is doing. Part of what He's doing is reminding us of the ultimate goal, which is to make us like Christ, and the means by which we get there. You don't have to like the process, but you can thank God for the purpose. Again, notice who it's for, and we'll finish with this, just the last two phrases. We'll, we'll pick back up with these, by the way, next week, but just, just to kind of give you a heads up. All things work together for good. To who? To those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. When he says to those who love God, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean, well, you get this as long as you love God. What, what a proper confession we had this morning. The command is that we love God and we love others. And that is the command because it so clearly identifies our inability to do such. When Paul says to those who love God, he's not identifying all things work together provided I first love God. He's identifying those who love God are those who have first been loved by God. In other words, this is a way to identify a believer. And that's made even more clear by that next phrase, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, the called and according to His purpose, that'll lead us into next week, all right? You've got to come back next Sunday, and we'll get all into that. I will not shy away from what I think the words foreknow and predestined mean. If you're worried about what I may believe about that, then we'll see you in two weeks. All right? Okay? I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know what you'll do with it. I'm just telling you, I do have very definite ideas about both of those things, uh, and we will talk about them. But Paul's words here, it's very important. These words, this promise does not apply to everyone. This only applies to those who know Christ as Savior. And so we'll have a time of response here this morning. And my first plea then would be to those who may not know Christ. If you've never confessed that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, ask God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done for you. Then know that Romans 8.28 is not talking to you. In fact, all things are not conspiring together for your good. All things are ultimately just leading to your destruction. Oh, I know that's bad news. I know that. But that is the reality of Scripture. But you can be saved today. God's grace can be made available to you and you can know the promise of Romans 8.28. If you, I'd, I'll be down front. If you'd like to know more about this, I'd be glad to talk with you about it. Maybe as, as one here today, you'd say, no, I, no I'm, I'm one who loves God because God loved me first. I, I'm one of those believers. Maybe there is something you've been struggling with. Maybe there, there is this that has, that, that has just been pounding your faith and your heart and your mind. And maybe you just want to come, pray here, trust that to the Lord. And again, confess what we know to be true, and that even the hardest things you're facing, God in His sovereignty and providence is orchestrating them to make you like Christ. And maybe what you need to do is just submit to what is God's, at times, difficult, but always good work in your life. Let's stand together, and I'm going to pray. And after I pray, then we will sing one, one, of, one of my absolute favorites. Not that that always matters, all right? He will hold me fast. What a profound promise as we think about this topic and what, what profound words then we can sing back to the Lord this morning. Father God, we do thank You for gathering us. We thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You for Your Word to us, for these promises to us. Father, we, we want these words to be the defining words for us, to be foundational words for us that we might use them as the grid through which we look at our lives to understand what You are doing. We thank You for this look behind the curtain, so to speak, that we get to see this divine work going on, often without us being aware of it, but we know that it is. 
So, Father, may we trust you with our lives, with our suffering, with our trial, knowing that your, your good work is going to be accomplished in us, that all will end in, in you being glorified and us being glorified. So, Father, I pray that you'd use this to comfort your people here. I pray that you'd use it also to convict those who may not know Christ as Savior and that you would do that work that only you can do, and that is call sinners unto yourself by your Spirit and in Christ Jesus, and that you would be glorified through any response that may be made. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.